Well, hi everyone. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here at Union Church in San Clemente. I want to thank you for tuning in. Um, today we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, you can open up there to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as always, if you have kids and young children, I just want to point you to our website and the kids page there. Uh, we have an interactive video lesson for them and uh, lessons for you to print out and for you as parents to work through with your kids. just want to encourage you to practice family worship as you gather together and hear God's word. want to do that as a family. And, and we have resources that our uh, kids leaders have put together for you that hopefully will be of benefit and of help for your children and for your family. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, and uh, we're covering a good amount of ground. So if you, again, have a Bible or an app, you can turn that on and you are going to want to follow along. I'm going to pray for our time and then we'll jump into God's Word. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for uh, another Sunday, another day to worship you by opening your word and receiving from your word. And we thank you, God, that your word is sufficient for all of our needs, for all of life and godliness, for understanding who you are, understanding salvation, understanding your will, and, and, and understanding and working through all the issues of life. Uh, we know that you've given us your word as a gift for all of those things and for much more. And so we just, we thank you for your word and for revealing yourself to us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as you're present with your people this morning, uh, for the members of Union Church and for all friends and visitors, maybe those tuning in for the first time, uh, we just ask you and trust that you are present and that you are working through your word, that you're convicting of sin, that you're encouraging, that you're leading into righteousness, and that ultimately you're pointing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We pray that we'd know more of him and him crucified today upon reading and hearing from your word. In your good name, amen. Well, the other day, uh, my family and I were in our backyard enjoying the evening, and my little daughter, Mabel, she's about yay high, and she just turned two on Christmas, and um, I mean, she's just the cutest thing ever. I mean, she's at such a fun age right now. I mean, just the conversations you have with her are just amazing and inspiring sometimes. I mean, she is just a doll. Um, but she also has a lot of spunk in her, and uh, which can be really fun and uh, also be uh, funny sometimes. And this is an example of that. And she comes up to us and with her pink stroller she got for Christmas, and she's kind of just strutting along with her stroller. And she comes up to me and my wife, Maddie, and she is kind of looking around and says, all right, well, I'm going to leave now. See you guys later. Bye. And she just kind of struts away and rolls on out. And she goes towards the side yard and then kind of looks back at us and and she's leaving and rounds the corner toward the gate as if she was going to leave. And we said, okay, see you later, Mabel. And obviously, she's two. She can't open the gate. She can't get out. We were confident that she would be okay and she wouldn't, in fact, be able to escape. Um, but it illustrates a point. My daughter, however serious she was, she thought to herself, I think I'm just going to leave, I think I'm mature enough and old enough and capable enough. And let's see what mom and dad say. Maybe I'll test the waters here. Maybe they'll just open the gate and let me out. I think I can handle this on my own. And we laugh about that with my daughter. She does things like that often, and we just get a kick out of it. But I say all that to illustrate the point that when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our faith in Jesus, when it comes to Christian community, the church, many Christians kind of view the church the way that Mabel viewed our family in that moment. She thought to herself, well, I'm part of this family, but 
I think I'm okay to leave and do my own thing. And that's oftentimes how many Christians view the church. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you you can be a Christian and not go to church. It's good to go to church, but you can be a Christian and not go to church. Ultimately, it's okay. You'll still go to heaven or something like that. I've had that question asked to me on multiple occasions. Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Is that part of the deal? I thought I was saved by grace and I don't really feel like going to church. And, and what I always like to say is that that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Um, the, the church is the family of God and Christians as we're saved, as God gets a hold of our hearts, changes our lives. He, he saves us as individuals, but he also brings us into his family. Right? So as Christians, we're not just out in the world spiritually orphaned. God actually brings us into his family. We're part of God's family with God as our father, Jesus as our elder brother spiritually. And the way that that always works out on earth in terms of what God intends for his kids is that we would enter into the, the body of a local church, right? That our Christianity and, 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 and the family aspect of being part of God's family with Jesus and heirs of the father, and part of that is that living, breathing people right, that, we, that we're in relationship with them, that we have access into their lives, they have access into our lives, and that we actually become part of a family. And that's where Peter's going this morning in his epistle. The, the, the first 12 verses uh, of this book, you'll recall, you can go back and listen to the sermons, Peter deals with our identity as Christians. Right? He starts with who we are in Christ. He says, you've been foreknown by God, you're loved by God, you've been born again, you've been brought into God's family. This is who you are, right? This is who you are as a Christian. You have a privileged position, you have an imperishable inheritance. All of these things about who we are as Christians. And then starting in verse 13, he pivots from who you are to now what to do. He doesn't start with what to do because that's not where the gospel starts. That's not where Christianity starts. Christianity starts with what Jesus has done, who we are in light of what Jesus has done. And then as a result, we now live out of our new identity. And so in verse 13, he begins exhorting Christians, these churches he's writing to, he begins exhorting them, here's what you now should do. And one of the main things he says in that passage is be holy as God is holy, right? As, as God's kids, we ought to pursue holiness reflecting the character of God the Father, of our Father, of our Heavenly Father, right? So as Christians, we're reflecting God's character, pursuing holiness as God is holy, not to earn our dad's favor, but because, right, we've been made sons and daughters. And so now we seek to imitate God and to reflect God and to be like God, Now, starting in verse 22, with all of that in mind, Peter moves into, from the individual before God, and now he moves into kind of the corporate body before God, Christian community, Christians together, the church before God. So what we're talking about, starting in verse 22, we're going to cover through verse 4, verse 3, rather, of chapter 2. In this section, and even as we move beyond, I want you to to hear this through the lens of the church, of Christian community. That's what the title of today's message is, Hallmarks of Christian Community. He's talking now to the church, right? 
here's who you are as an individual before God. Here's how you ought to respond and live out of your identity as an individual. And now we're moving to the corporate gathering, the church. This is what the church looks like. Here are some hallmarks of what God's people, the church, ought to look like and display and pursue. So that's where Peter's going this morning. First thing for us to consider is love. Love. This is where Peter starts in verse 22. That Christian community, the church, is marked by love. 1 Peter 1 at 22, Peter says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. In the previous section, again, be holy like God is holy. And here's what he starts with in verse 22. As a result of that, as you are pursuing holiness, here's what he says happens. Verse 22, you will purify your souls, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. That as we obey God, as we pursue God, as we seek to be holy as God is holy, Peter says that we experience progressive growth, right? Progressive growth. The Bible uses terms like sanctification to describe this. As we pursue God and pursue holiness, that we actually change. When we get saved, our life changes in an instant. Our our hearts are changed. But then the rest of our lives, now being saved, we then begin and continue to look more like Jesus the more we grow and the older we get. That's the intention, at least. That's the growth plan for the Christian. This isn't a straight-up line, right? We're still in a fallen world. We have sinful flesh, but it ought to be overall on its way up, right? I've used the analogy before, like the stock market. You look at a stock market chart and you see there's ups, there's some downs, there's dips and pullbacks, but ultimately over years, the market is ultimately up. And, and, and that's what our Christian lives ought to look like. And so Peter says, as you pursue holiness, as you seek to look like God, you will progressively grow. And the expectation then with this growth is that this growth in holiness will lead to deep love among Christians. This is what he says in verse 22. Purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love for a sincere brotherly love. The expectation, Peter's expectation, is that growth and holiness will lead to deep love among Christians, right? Think about when you were converted. The world looked less attractive, I would hope. I mean, that's what happens when we become Christians. We're part of the world. We get saved out of the world. The world doesn't look as attractive anymore. I know that when I became a Christian, I have certainly like everybody, was still tempted by certain things. But the, thing, the world that I was involved in before my conversion, it just wasn't as attractive anymore. Right? I might have had temptations, I certainly did, but, it, but, but I didn't want to dive back in. I didn't want the old life. I had new desires. That's what happens when we become Christians. I mean, our desires change. The world doesn't look as attractive. We meet some Christian friends, and we go to church. Maybe we got saved in a church, and so we're already there. And, and as we meet Christians then, we go from the world, right, and our relationships in the world, and then we meet Christians. And what happens is, naturally, our, our, our relationships begin to slowly grow with these Christians. I mean, even if, you know, maybe this happened to you when you became a Christian, you're all of a sudden interacting with and building a friendship with somebody who you two probably would have never connected before Christ. Right? But, but now that you have a commonality in Christ, you've both been forgiven, 
You both understand the gospel. You both are pursuing the same ultimate goal to know Jesus better. You both have the same foundation. And, and what happens is your, your relationships start to naturally blossom and you start to cultivate a love for each other. Right? This is the expectation Peter has, the natural progression of pursuing holiness, truly pursuing holiness as Christians will result in, in this natural growth of love for God's people, for other Christians. So it is a natural progression, but I want you to notice this. It's also commanded. Peter says, for sincere brotherly love, your obedience to the truth kind of results in brotherly love. But now he says, in addition, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. There's a natural growth in love for God's people, but as well, it's commanded. We must actively pursue loving one another. I, I see this with my kids pretty clearly, and I, and I love seeing it. They, my two older ones, Haddon, he's three and a half, coming up on four in July, and Mabel, she turned two on Christmas. And it's like they're really close in age, and they just are buddies. We didn't really have to do a lot to make that happen. They just started growing, and they begin to love each other and hang out. They make each other laugh. I mean, they get a kick out of each other. Mabel kind of follows Haddon around. Sometimes being the meddler she is, she'll kind of come and destroy his stuff and sabotage what he's doing, and he'll get mad, but then he'll laugh. I mean, they, they just love each other. They love hanging out. They're buddies. They run through the sprinklers in our backyard right now. Weather's getting hotter. I mean, they just do stuff together. Now, that is all true. Their love is naturally grown, but at the same time, we also, mom and dad, have to step in and command them to love. We have to remind them. We have to instruct them in love. Hey, say you're sorry. Hey, share that toy. Hey, give some to Mabel too. Hey, take care of your sister. Hey, don't sabotage your brother's stuff. Right? Be kind to each other. Love one another. Pursue love right? in a way that they can understand. There's a natural aspect, but there's also an instructional aspect. And that's what Peter's doing with us here. There'll be a natural aspect for us as Christians, but we also, as we read God's word, we're instructed and exhorted and commanded to love one another. All right, this is what Peter commands us to do. Christian community, the church, is marked by love. The church is marked by love. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the Lord Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. Right? It's not whatever type of love you want. It's not however you feel like loving. It's not your own personal, subjective, individual standard of love. He gives us a really clear standard. Love one another as I have loved you. We'll get into that more in a moment. It says, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the first signs of genuine growth and holiness is love. Love. Love is... One of the first, if not the first hallmark of Christian community. So we need to talk about love. We also need to recognize, however, that as with so many terms, love has been completely hijacked. The term love has been completely hijacked. In a commentary this week, author said this about the term love. He says, love is a terribly debased term today. A bit cynical, but I get his point. Almost beyond rescue as a description of the good news of the kingdom come in Jesus Christ. And then he says, we must work to recover an understanding, a biblical understanding and practice of love. And, and he's right. The, the term love has been largely hijacked. We must then 
not just assume we understand what Scripture is talking about, what Peter's talking about when he uses terms like love. We must carefully and biblically define love. What is love? What is love? Well, we know that love is not merely an emotional state. We know that love is not merely sitting around a coffee pot, time together, conversation. We know that love is not just passions and desires. Now, all of those things, emotion, deep emotion, time, passion, all of those things are involved in love. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to downplay any of those things. Those those are all involved in love. But love is none of those things. None of those things are love. We need to be clear on this. Biblical love, you can mark this, biblical love is seeking the good of another without selfish motive. Biblical love is seeking the good of another without selfish motive. C.S. Lewis says it this way, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. The world's love, contrasting, is largely defined by Disney's view of love, like kind of the prince and the princess and the magic and all that. Disney's view of love or magazine tabloids, right? the media, celebrity opinion. Right? What do celebrities think about love? Oh, they, here's what love is. I posted it on my Twitter account and it got 50 million likes. A lot of people are influenced by that. That's kind of how the world defines love, or maybe even at its basis, the definition or whatever you would call it, what the world offers for love, maybe even at a lower level, is just your own subjective opinion. Love is whatever you want it to be. You can love however you want. You can make it mean whatever you want. You can love whoever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. You can make love whatever you want as long as you feel good about it. Yeah, that's really the highest standard. That's God. That's gospel. Whatever you feel. All of this, over time, has crept unnoticed into the church. All of this, over time, has crept unnoticed in different ways, at different times, different levels of severity in different places, but it has all crept in and influenced the church at large. All right, lots of Christian music you can listen to, ushy, gushy, Jesus is my girlfriend type of content. I'm not trying to make fun of, I, I love some Christian music. I'm not saying it's all like that. Don't hear me say that. There's some that's really good, faithful, and, but, but a lot of it is, is really not very biblical. In the name of Christianity and the Bible and the church, here's some Christian music, and it's about me and my love relationship with Jesus and how he's kind of this gushy boyfriend I have. It's not good. It's not solid. It's not sound. It's not true. It's a book, well-known book, and there's been a, a number of uh, books like this, but real well-known book, a number of years ago, came out. The title, Love Wins. Some of you have read it. If you haven't read it, I don't recommend it. No need to read it. It's, it, it, it sound, the title sounds good. I, I mean, look, love is an attribute of God. We, we, we should celebrate God's love. He's loved sinners and pursued sinners, and so we can now love him back. But this book made the case that 
God ultimately doesn't really condemn anyone to hell, that hell's not eternal, that ultimately God's love wins out in the end and everybody's rescued from hell, right? Those who, 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 who died apart from faith in Jesus, who go and experience eternal conscious torment of hell, which is all very biblical. It's scary if you never heard about that and it's, it's not popular, but it's biblical, right? The Bible teaches that and it's very important. And to say that, well, that kind of exists, but really God is so loving that he actually makes that not exist. That's actually not very true. And that sounds really good and it's very deceptive to people who don't know their Bibles well, but it's all damnable, to be honest. False view of love that's crept into the church and now has influenced lots and lots of God's kids. A lot of preaching today on love hard time making the case it's biblical and at best a lot of preaching on love is just unclear biblical love church is seeking the good of another without selfish motive even at great expense at great personal expense yes deep real good feelings and emotions are involved in love i want to be clear on that we're not saying that love is emotionless deep good Real feeling and emotion is certainly involved in love. Peter says in verse 22, he says, love one another earnestly. And earlier he says, with a sincere brotherly love. One author says this earnestly, that word, is in, it's trying to convey strong, deeply felt, fervent emotions and desires. Emotions are certainly a part of love, involved in love. Right? robotically doing the right actions is not the heart of love. So, so I just want to clear that up. Emotions are involved, but emotion and feeling is not love. Feeling a certain way is not love. Listen, sometimes we understand this. Our, our hands follow our heart. Our actions follow our emotions, right? My wife's birthday is today, Sunday, and you know, I mean, she's 30, you know, it's the big, th big 3-0. So leading up to her birthday, it's like, I've been considering her, just thinking about her, reflecting on the life we've had so far together. Just, just super thankful. Uh, I mean, I, I love my wife and I just love where God has us and with the family that we have and, and what God's doing in her life and the memories that we have. And it just, it just brings me to joy. And that's very emotional, right? It's very emotional. And as a result, my hands my actions are, want to follow that. It's like, I want to serve her. I want to love her. I want to get her gifts. I want to do these things. My hands follow the heart. Sometimes our actions follow our emotions. That's, that's good. And we understand that. But I want to say this. We have to understand this as well. Sometimes it's reversed. Sometimes the heart follows the hands. Sometimes our emotions follow our actions. Sometimes our emotions follow our actions. I have another C.S. Lewis quote for you. You're welcome. And Lewis says this, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. And don't sit around thinking, do I love my, do I love my neighbor or not? Ah, if, I, if I don't, I don't want to be ingenuine. Don't, he says, don't sit around thinking, bothering, toiling whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you loved someone, as if you felt that love, when you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Sometimes, our heart follows our hands. Peter says, love one another 
unequivocally unqualified, love one another. Love one another. That's what Peter says. Now you might say, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. I, you know, I just don't know them that well, or I just don't, I don't know, we've never really connected. I don't feel it. Or maybe they've hurt me. They've wronged me. They've offended me. They've done something against me. And I don't like them. Maybe I'm just sick of them. I just don't want to be around them anymore. I just don't feel it. And I don't want to be ingenuine. I don't want to do something and have it be fake. I don't want to be ingenuine. I'm not feeling it. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to feel it. You do not have to feel a certain way in order to seek someone else's good. You do not have to feel a certain type of sentiment in order to pursue the good of a brother or sister in Christ. More good news for you, it's not ingenuine when you pursue somebody else for good, even if you don't feel like it. It's not ingenuine. If you're not convinced, I want you to consider Jesus. Jesus, sovereign God over all creation, condescends to a fallen world, to fallen man, who, mankind, has done nothing since the fall but disobey and disrespect and disregard and rebel against him. He created us good, and we've rebelled, and we've been in rebellion ever since Adam and Eve. And yet he comes to earth, and he lives a life in our place, perfect life, in our place, in the place of sinners. All the while, again, he's disrespected, he's rejected, he's disobeyed, he's not taken seriously, he's mocked by most people, he's taken advantage of. People want him for a free lunch, they see he's a miracle worker, they want to get stuff out of him, they don't care about him. That, that's Jesus' life. He, he then goes to the cross and he dies. He dies a death in our place. And he's beaten and he's mocked and he's shamed and he's crucified. And he bears all of the wrath of God for sin on himself. He never sinned. He never sinned one time. And yet he comes and he, though he's not guilty of sin, he makes himself responsible for the sin of his people, for the sin of his bride. It's leadership. That's headship. He makes himself responsible. He takes the payment. He doesn't come and just tell them what to do, tell us what to do. He comes and he takes responsibility. And he handles our biggest issue, our sin that separates us from God. He takes all of it on the cross. On the cross then, Jesus, as he's looking at his executioners, he, some of his last words, he utters, Father, forgive them. Forgive these people who are executing me. And then with his last words on the cross, he yells in a loud voice, it is finished. It's finished. All the work, all the good that I've been seeking for these people is finished. It's all finished. Jesus seeks the good of sinners until the end. Jesus gives all in order to seek the good of sinners. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think he felt like it? Do you think he felt like it? Unless you have a really bad view of Christology, of the person of Christ, and you think, well, when he's on earth, he doesn't really feel any pain. He's full of joy, and he's just pretending. He feels all the pain. He feels all the disrespect. We hurt him. You realize that? Jesus, as a man, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He had feelings. I, I mean, he had dignity that we 
attempted to strip away. I mean, he, he was shamed. Isaiah says that Jesus, the Messiah to come, would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Do you think Jesus felt some joyful, ticklish feeling or some sentiment that, 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 that fueled all of those actions? That's not what it was. In fact, in the night before his crucifixion, he's in the garden praying and asking his father if there's any other way. I'm, ex- I'm stressed out. I'm breaking. I know what's going to happen. I'm sweating drops of blood. And I'm asking God if there's any other way to accomplish your work and your mission to redeem sinners. Can we do that? There was no other way. Jesus didn't feel like doing any of that, but he did all of it. He did all of it. Hebrews 12, verse 2. The author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, that we as Christians, as we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, listen to what he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated now at the right hand of God. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what that means? It means he didn't feel like it. He didn't have some sentimental feeling. What he felt was pain. What he felt was agony. What he felt was sadness and excruciating pain, physical and spiritual, as he's bearing the wrath of God for sin. But look what it says, what Scripture says. For the joy set before him, he looked ahead. This is what the result will be. This is what God will do. This is what we're going for, and so I can bear it. I can bear it, even though I despise the shame. Friends, I want us to think about Jesus. When we consider loving someone who we don't feel like loving, so I don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. I don't want to be ingenuine. No, 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 no. Look at Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Look to Jesus and look what he did. And when we seek to love someone, seek somebody's good, we, we look ahead. God, I trust you're going to use this. I trust you're going to change my heart. I have hard feelings. I have a hard heart. I need to confess that to you. I don't want to be around this person. I need to confess that to you. And I want you to change me. I want you to change me. So I'm going to seek to love them. I'm going to seek to pursue them. I'm going to seek to do good to them. So question for us, how are you seeking to love one another? How are you seeking to love one another? I don't just want to talk about this theoretically. I want to talk about it practically, really, actually. How are you seeking to love one another? Union Church, how are you seeking to love one another? And I'm not saying you're not. I know that you are. Many of you are. I mean, I'll give you some examples in a moment, but I mean... For those of you that are, I want to encourage you, continue. Don't get weary of doing good. For those of you that have been a little bit inward the last few weeks, consider how you might obey Scripture and love one another. We're talking about, there's other people to love too, but, but the context here is Christian community, is the church. Peter's writing two churches. So how are we seeking to love one another? Not just your best friend those that are easy to love, that you love to love, them, but not just your best friend, but also those who you don't like, also those who you have a hard time being around with. I, I, I realize that there, as fallen human beings, there, there may be conflict among us. Maybe you have hard feelings with another brother or sister at the church. Maybe they're outside the church. 
How are you seeking to love them? I'm not saying it's all cake and flowers. I'm not saying this is all easy. I am saying, Peter's saying, love one another. Love one another. So, so how are you seeking to love one another? Words, actions, a note, call, gifts, encouragement, care. I mean, whatever. Get creative. Figure it out. Figure it out. But how are you seeking to love one another? I know we're at a distance. I know we're quarantined. But, but there's ways to do this, right? There's ways to encourage each other and to love one another and to care for one another. Uh, Lisa Sandifer last week, she faithfully serves in Union Kids and at Parked every Tuesday. All the moms, young moms get together with young kids and, and she, does, out there, uh, she does child care in the backyard there at Parked. She just loves those kids so well. And last week, she was just missing the kids. I mean, we haven't gathered, you know, for anything, church or small groups in weeks now. And she's missing the kids. She says, you know what? I'm going to get on a Zoom call with them. And I know it's not the same, but I just want to encourage them. I want to tell them how much I love them. I want to see their faces. I want to do something fun for them, make them laugh. That's love. That is pursuing the good of another, pursuing to bless these kids and love these kids. Laura and Jocelyn, week before leading up to Easter, put together a bunch of baskets, uh, dropped them off for families that don't have a church home, either new to town or not Christians or whatever, in, a, in an effort to love, to love. And I tell you, there, I mean, it's just so encouraging seeing the response. So many of these families just thank you. We don't have any, we're new to town, we don't have any family around here for Easter, and we're just really thankful. Thank you for loving us in that way. Our union kids leaders, Matt and Larissa, put together baskets and dropped them off at all our members' homes for Easter. Just say hi, here's a gift, I love you. And look, I'm just, I tell you all this just to encourage you. Love, actions of love. I mean, the good of our church members are, is being pursued. And for those of you that are doing that, I want to encourage you to continue. Don't get weary of good works. For those of you that are not, I want to point you outward. I want to point you outward. You can be used by God in the life of another person for good. Isolation makes us inward. It makes us think about our own problems, consider our own problems, and stare at our own problems oftentimes. And I want, I want to just turn us outward. And this is for me as well. It, it's easy for all of us to consider ourselves, especially when we're confined. But God's word turns us outward. His word turns us outward. Love is a hallmark of Christian community. Love is a hallmark of Christian community. Love one another, Peter says. But in addition, Christian community is built on God's word. Christian community is built on God's word. Christian community is marked by love. Christian community is built on God's word. The church is built on God's word. Verse 22 and 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23. Since since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He goes back again to identity. Okay, love how Peter does this because we always have to be reminded of our identity. All of this in, is rooted in our identity and who we are in Christ. Peter says you can love rightly because you've been born again. He doesn't just start the epistle off by saying love each other or just be holy. No, no, no. Starts with identity and goes back to identity. You can love because you've been born again. You've been brought into right relationship with God. And therefore, as ex by extension, and as a result, right relationship with each other. You can love 
rightly because you've been born again, but also you must love rightly because you've been born again. Be who you are, Peter says. Live out of your identity. Love one another. Love one another. And now, he gives us insight on this new birth. You can love because you've been born again. You must love because you've been born again. Now he dives deep into what this new birth is. And here's what he said. You've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Let me ask, what, what is perishable seed? We're like, what, what is this? Well, it's anything that dies. Any seed that dies. You ever notice if you've laid grass down or if you have grass in your backyard in the winter it, and we get some rain, you see it's green and it's just, and it's lush. I mean, I, there's this walk I do regularly and there's this big, huge kind of hill field in a, in a canyon. And it is, I mean, after rains, it is just lush and green. And I kid you not, I mean, maybe a, a week or two later, if it's been dry and sunny and hotter, it's, I mean, it's a barren desert. It's, you, you know, it's, it's just, it's like dry twigs just break. I mean, before it was lush, green kind of canyon. Seed, perishable seed is seed that dies. Animal seed, animals reproduce and they die. Humans have kids and we all die. We all die. Perishable seed is seed that dies. Verse 24, Peter compares this fleshly seed and fleshly glory to the imperishable seed. All flesh is like grass. He's quoting here from Isaiah 40, verse 6. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. Fleshly seed and earthly glory, Peter says, it fades, it's fleeting, and it dies. Now listen, listen. Most people build their lives on perishing seed, on earthly glory, on earthly ambition. Money, power, status, possessions, looks, pleasure, comfort, fun. Okay, you build your life on those things. It's fleeting. Ultimately, you're going to get old. You can't have as much fun. You're going to die. You can't take your money with you. You're going to get wrinkles. You won't look as good in 30 or 40 years. It's fleeting. Or even if we go look at it a little bit more noble of an angle. A lot of folks out there, not quite so... You know, a little more virtuous or whatever, a little bit more decent, maybe people would say. This decent guy, decent in the world's eyes, just a good guy in the world's eyes, or a good gal in the world's eyes. And a lot of folks build their life, maybe not on money or status or power, but maybe they build it on family. They find their identity in being a mom or a dad. Maybe they build it on family. They build it on their kids. They build it on their spouse. They build it on having a good reputation, being honorable, being a hard worker, treating their employees right. But friends, if we don't know Jesus, if we don't know Jesus, whether our lives are built on something really obvious and base and carnal like money or pleasure or status, or whether they're built on something a little bit more noble like a family or a good reputation or virtue, if we don't know Jesus, it's all fleeting. If we don't know Jesus, none of it will last. It's just like the grass. And even the greatest, most glorious, most noble among us is just like a little dandelion. And the wind comes by, whoosh, it's gone. And the sun comes up and it scorches it. 
It's gone. It's perishable. It's not only perishable, but it's here today, gone tomorrow, like a mist. And Peter says, the birth, the new birth of Christians is imperishable. It's imperishable. Our spiritual birth, our spiritual seed, comes through the word of God. This is what Peter says. You've been born not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Our, our spiritual life, imperishable, comes through the word of God. So listen, God's word is imperishable. Never ends, never is destroyed. God's word is forever imperishable. God's word is imperishable and the life it generates is imperishable. The life it generates in us is imperishable. See, church, as Christians, our lives are not built on status or possessions or position or family. As good as family is, family can become idolatry. We can have kids and they can be little idols running around. They're good blessings and gifts. I'm not, I love my kids, but life built on children is idolatry. As Christians, our lives are not built on even family or morals or integrity, but they're built on the word of God. As the Christian community, the church, is not built on production quality or programs or personality or music quality or charisma or what stuff we have to offer that is attractive to people, but built on the word of God. The church is built on the word of God. Ephesians 2.20 says this, You are no longer Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians are members of God's family, the church. And then Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the New Testament, and prophets, Old Testament, the scriptures, the Bible. Right? God's word is the foundation of the church. Christian community is built on God's word. Our lives are not built on anything but God's word. The church is not built on anything but God's word. Sinners are not saved by anything but God's word. Sinners are not saved by charisma or persuasiveness or emotional manipulation or just being understood or fitting in. Sinners are not saved by any of those things. Sinners are saved by the word of God. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The word of God must be read, heard, preached, proclaimed, heralded, delivered, because that's what saves sinners. The Holy Spirit working through the word, that's what saves sinners and nothing else. And here's the sad news. Here's the sad news that I hope breaks our hearts. We live in a day of massive Biblical and theological famine. We live in a day of biblical and theological famine. Faithful, accurate, biblical preaching is rare. And many of God's kids, his Christians, his church, many of God's kids are starving and they don't even know it. Many are immature and don't even know it. And many are in church who are not even Christians 
and are never, that's never dealt with. It's, it's never an issue because everyone's accepted. There's never any clarity. There's never any conviction. Biblical famine, not because the Bible is in short supply, but because folks who are willing, it's not just preachers, but preachers and folks who are willing to lead with conviction from Scripture, by Scripture, are, are rare. It's rare. Christian community is built on the Word of God and nothing else, and nothing else. And church, we must seek, savor, treasure, love, Proclaim hope in, take joy in God's word. We, we must, we must. It's not an us versus anyone else. This is just a, a, a fact. This is a reality. We're in a biblical famine and we must take a stand as a church, as families, as individuals, as Christians and say we, we love God's word. We're not going to deviate from God's word. We're not just going to use God's word to make our point. We're not going to use God's word to just say whatever we want to say. We're going to actually faithfully teach and apply God's word, not in preaching, but also just in the ministry of the church and in our lives and in our families. It's not just a Sunday thing. We must do that. We must be that. We must seek to love and honor and treasure God's word. Just to encourage you and to give you something to think about, grab on, grab on to and digest this week, I want to give you four, four attributes of Scripture, qualities of Scripture. Simple, briefly, but I want to give you four different attributes of Scripture to think on and consider and be encouraged by this week. Sufficient, scripture is sufficient. It's sufficiency, clarity, it's authoritative, and it's necessary. Scripture is... Sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. Scan, S-C-A-N. Sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary. Right, and I want you to talk about this this week in your union groups and consider it for yourself as a Christian and in your families this week. Number one, Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. 1 Peter 1, 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. That's good news because that's what our hope is in. God's word and what it promises and the person it points to, Jesus. The word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, there was no chapter divisions in the original. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Okay, this is the good news that was preached to you. God's word is eternal. And, and, and now, in light of that, as Christians who've been born again by God's word, put away all of this sin. Scripture is sufficient for us as Christians for life and godliness and sanctification and growing in holiness and putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Scripture is sufficient for all of that. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's sufficiency. <laughs> That's sufficiency. Now, we don't mean that Scripture is sufficient for all topics in the world. Scripture is not sufficient to teach us about the intricacies of biology or chemistry or mathematics or sports or baseball. There's a lot of information out there that's all true. So we're not saying that Scripture has every truth or fact or instruction for anything in life. We are saying it's sufficient for us as Christians to grow as Christians, to know and love God, to love each other, to obey God, to follow God. It's sufficient for us 
to feed us and nourish us and make us healthy. Reading it on our own must do that, but also hearing it preached, also hearing it preached. We need both of those things. Some people think I just read the Bible on my own. I don't need anyone else. I can figure it out on my own. That's a very foolish position. Not to offend you, but there's been a couple thousand years of godly Christians thinking about scripture and God and theology and for us to think, I don't need any of that stuff. I got it all figured out. Not a good, not a good position to have. In addition, we need living, breathing people here to work through scripture with and we need to hear scripture preached, not just on our favorite podcast, but in our own church. We need to hear scripture preached Because that is God's means, one of God's means for giving grace to his people. Not because the ability or talent or persuasiveness of the man preaching, but because God's spirit works in preaching. And he gives grace to his people through the word preached. We need to read it on our own. We need to hear it preached. It's sufficient. Number two, it's clear. The clarity of scripture is astounding. Scripture is clear. Now you might think if you're new to, maybe a new Christian or you're new to the Bible or maybe you've never read it, You might think, look, I've tried to read it. I don't know where to go. And when I do, I just open up to the middle and there's just weird stuff in there, weird stories. I don't know how to make sense of it. There's some songs and there's some history. Then there's like some like prophecy and there's people like getting blown up and there's just weird stuff happening. I go to Psalms and Proverbs and I can kind of understand that, but the rest I'm not really clear on. So what do you mean it's clear? And I would just say this, there's, there's a lot of complex things in scripture for sure. And when we pick it up and just kind of read it haphazardly like a magazine, it'll be very confusing. But if we put a little bit of time, effort, and energy into investigating Scripture and hopefully seek out some instruction, I promise you, God will make it clear. There is, there is clarity. Scripture is clear. It clearly tells us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, who God is, who we are in, in, in relation to God. It tells us about sin. It's really clear on all these things. It gives us to them clear. It gives these things to us clearly. I would just say this: if you're if you're new to Scripture and you haven't read it, start in in Mark's Gospel, a place like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the second book of the New Testament. It's the second Gospel. Short, concise, clear account of Jesus, His life and ministry. Start there, and God will bring to your understanding the Gospel and who Jesus is. Scripture is clear. For those of you who might be more mature, who are confused when you get to Scripture, hey, I feel you. There's, some, there, there's complex things in here. But man, continue to pursue understanding, seeking, studying Scripture. And I'll say this too. Pray through Scripture. Ask God to give you understanding. Paul says to Timothy, God will give you understanding in these things. But you must ask. You must ask. And you must put the, the effort in and the energy in. Scripture is sufficient, it's clear. Number three, it's authoritative. Scripture is our final and ultimate authority. And this one's difficult for some. We don't like the word authority. Sufficiency sounds good, it gives us what we need. Clarity sounds good, I can understand it. But we sometimes don't like the word authority. But Scripture is our authority, final and ultimate authority. has ultimate bearing on our life. And here's why. Because God's word are God's Words. It's not just a title. God's word is not just a title for the book. It's actually God's words, what he spoke and revealed and, and, and showed us. Right? He lifts the curtain and shows us what we would have not otherwise known about him and sin and salvation and our own nature. 
Scripture is authoritative. 2 Timothy 3.16, again, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's all from God. God's words. 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, Peter rather, um, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Peter gets at a similar idea. He says, know this, or knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. We don't look at Scripture and say, well, what's your opinion? What does it mean to you? What is it, you know, there's a bunch of different meanings, so we just got to figure out what we like and then choose it. That's not how it works. Now, Scripture can apply to us in different ways. You can say, the way this applies to me, my situation, this, this timeless truth applies in a variety of situations. But what Scripture means is not up for debate. God actually wrote it. He actually spoke it. Scripture is authoritative. And so we seek to submit to the authority of Scripture as individuals and together as a church, right, at every level. Corporately as a church, we seek to submit to Scripture and do what Scripture says, actually obey Scripture in terms of how we do our church service, what we value, what we put energy into, time, money, how we do ministry, and all of that. We seek to be in line with Scripture, Encourage families at the church, lead your families, husbands, lead your families according to Scripture, not just what you feel is right. Lead according to Scripture. As individuals, we must submit to Scripture. What does it say about what I ought to do as one of God's kids? And I want to say this too. Sometimes our standard is like, as long as it's not explicitly sinful, then it's fair game. The standard needs to be higher than not explicitly sinful. Right? That's not a good standard. That's like about the lowest standard. Not just not sinful, but robustly biblical. I heard of a church years ago where they had some fall thing and Sunday, and they spent a lot of money to stuff a guy in a cannon, a stunt guy, and shoot him out of a cannon. And said, oh, this will attract tons of non-Christians. It's like, <laughs> that may not... I mean, I don't even know, actually, but, it, but it, let's just say it may not be explicitly sinful, but it's not, that's not biblical. It's not biblical. For you as an individual, maybe you're single, you're dating someone, you cuddle up under the covers, the lights off, watch a movie, no one else is home. That in itself, don't get me wrong here, I don't want to be misinterpreted, but that act in itself, we're here on a couch, that may not be sinful, but it's about the stupidest thing you could do because you have already sinned in your heart. But the action may not be sinful. So don't have the standard of, well, it's just not sinful, right? We want to be robustly biblical under the authority of Scripture. Lastly, the necessity of Scripture. Scripture is necessary. We need Scripture. It's not just important. They're not just suggestions. But Scripture is absolutely critical. It's essential, Right? And it's not just essential during a quarantine. It's essential always. Last verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good.
long for spiritual milk. It's necessary. We need it for our growth. We need scripture for our health. We need scripture to know and grow with God. We need scripture to know and grow in relationship with each other, to love each other faithfully, to be faithful witnesses and ambassadors here on earth. We need scripture. It is absolutely necessary. Peter wants his people, these churches, to grow into maturity. And God wants us, learning from First Peter here, to grow into maturity. And friends, we're individuals before God. We're also corporately a community, a church before God. And here are two really important hallmarks of Christian community. We love one another. We love one another deeply, fervently, pursuing each other's good. How are you doing that? continue to or start to. Number two, the Christian community is built on God's word. Our lives are built on God's word, but the church is also built on God's word, and we must be lovers of God's word, treasuring it, abiding by it, submitting to it, repenting when we sin and fail, because that will happen. We've got to repent when we sin. I mean, this isn't a perfect thing, but we're progressing and we're growing and loving and proclaiming God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear, it is sufficient, it is authoritative, and it's of utmost necessity. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to submit to it, to love it, to treasure it. Pray that you'd help me to love scripture more this week in a way that communes with you and honors you and glorifies you. I pray that you'd help my friends, Lord, our church and everyone else watching uh, to desire and love scripture more. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to love one another as you have loved us. This week, bring things to mind and give us, just help us, Holy Spirit, to actually make an effort to pursue one another in love, to pursue the good of each other, to care for each other and encourage one another, that we might be built up stronger together, Lord, and more glorifying and honoring to you. In your good name, amen.